This is a Media Lab podcast. Get down, get down, Dave. Jeez Louise. Oh my God. There's not much to duck he's gonna under. He's going to see us. I don't think he can. He doesn't have any eyes. He's weird. Yeah, he's uh, kind of this amorphous blob. If you play D&D, he's like a gelatinous cube, but in sentient form. I don't know how else to explain it. He's a bit blobby. Yeah, that's a little rude. Maybe. You know, body shaming an alien? I'm not, Come on. I'm not, maybe you're in. Hey, hey, hey. Maybe you're into that sort of thing. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just saying, physically, a bit of a blob. Wow. Also, have you noticed how polite it is? Well, he's saying, please let me in, please let me in. I don't think that's the same thing as politeness, Dave. Do you think we should just give him back the diamonds? Is that going to make this all go away? I don't know. I mean, we've worked this hard to get those rocks. Mm -hmm. I think we just need to find a chute to pass through and just get the F out of here. You know, I dream someday of a brighter future, Dave. Somewhere where these bright white walls of this spaceship no longer blind my retinas. You know, I bet if we just keep walking randomly we'll find a dark shadow oh. to walk through all right well yeah kind of sounds like our podcast doesn't it dave <laughs> <laughs> into the darkness into the darkness on a rinky dig spaceship headed back to earth kyle and dave are stuck on board with an evil machine this giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks if they don't obey then it'll be the end of the world again this is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. My name is Kyle. And my name is Dave with no vowels. Just this is DV. DV. And I'm the machine. This is a podcast where, like, what would that be for me? I would just be KL, I guess. This is a podcast where... Cole. Cole. Not to be confused with the movie Krull. Mm. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today we're going to be watching the film THX 1138. Ooh. All Earth Council, in its infinite wisdom, has decided these two numbers are to be disposed of. The Biochemical Forum has demands to make on their parts, however, before they are eliminated. That's the kind of efficiency that makes you proud to live in this era. First, a big thank you to our patrons, Green Girl YYC, and It's a Conspiracy Podcast. Dave, I think what we need to do is kind of revisit a filmmaker that we have talked about on our show before. In our previous season, we were in the year 1999, which is, of course, the year of The Phantom Menace. So we did talk a little bit about this back then. But I think just more broadly, I want to know what your history is with George Lucas. Yeah, I mean, he aged like an Ewok. Okay. Are we doing okay. body shaming still? Jeez, Louise. No, no, okay. Dave, the master of like of going directly to like 
they're kind of fat and old. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let the record show. No, Star Wars is my childhood. Learning in midlife that he and Spielberg were like BFFs Mm -hmm. and he's also, um, what is it, responsible from a producing side and conceptual side of Indiana Jones, which is also part of my childhood. Lucasfilm, THX. Industrial Light Magic, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's basically uh, created every film that I've liked uh, in some form or fashion uh, for the last 40 years, except that I also hate him. Because okay. he's a revisionist. No, he's That's a little he's a strong. Weird... That's a little strong. <laughs> no, he's a strange person, man. Like, it's one thing to rebuild something because you regret a decision. It's another thing to burn the copies of right. your original work, right? There's something very insecure about that. And uh, it made me sad, you know, that when he rebuilt, like, the trilogy, that we'll never get to watch what was originally produced in the film. Right. You just cannot... You can't get it unless it's still on Betamax or something. So there's uh, some selling of his uh, tarnishing of his reputation, I think, coming out of 1999. I'm not a big fan of the prequels, but there's no questioning his huge impact on American cinema. I legally have to call him daddy. I think that's the biggest thing. Like Whether you like him or not, the impact that he has had is pretty undeniable at this point. The way that Star Wars specifically has change the way that people release movies consider movies the special effects that he was a pioneer of or at least the teams that he built up around him that helped him realize that dream there's a direct correlation between star wars to like terminator to jurassic park like all of those things really got off the ground because of him this is why i'm actually really excited to talk about this movie one because i've never actually seen it before but also the young George Lucas is such a fascinating character to me before he like breaks out and becomes like this household name and the architect of geekdom as we know it today. There is this bit of a rabble rouser inside of him, like a pushing against like the man, quote unquote. I said this, I believe I said this in our Star Wars episode last year. I doubt it. I really do think that Star Wars both is the best thing and the worst thing that ever happened to him. I really think it ruined him as a, as a filmmaker. Because uh, have, have you ever watched American Graffiti? Yeah. I love American I Graffiti. I mean, can you say ruined him when he only made two films before he made Star well, Wars? The, well, see, that's, my, that's kind of my point. I, I look at American Graffiti, which I love. I love American Graffiti. And I like the very first Star Wars movie. I really like the first Star Wars movie. Like? I know. I was, I was a bit the greatest films ever made. Uh, right. How are we making a podcast Empire together? Empire is better, I, Dave, I and he wasn't the director for that one. So. Of course. Yeah. But Anyways. You know, but I'm tr- Star Wars is great. Yes. You know, everyone thought that movie was going to fail, and he really pushed that through. It's like, no, there's a vision here. There's something here. I would love to have known, you know, in this alternate universe, let's just say an alternate universe, where Star Wars is like a modest hit, right? It's not like this like bonkers, crazy, like, again, transform cinema. It was like, it made $50 million. <laughs> you know what I mean? What he would have continued to try and do. Would he just have tinkered around in Star Wars for the next 40 years? Or would he have actually continued to make other things? Of course, we can never prove what, one way or the other, but there's the unmade George Lucas films of like the 80s and 90s that I kind of am interested in seeing that alternate future or history, I guess, at this no, no, point. No. I mean, this is classic apologist, Kyle. Well, it's I mean, not apologist. I'm just interested if if that had no, not happened. Uh, you know what this is? This is this is your geek fantasy mm-hmm. that he could have been something and he wasn't. He was something completely 
different. You could even argue, perhaps, that he was never even a director. You know, he directed exceptional films, but when he was on his own helm, he made the prequels, which honestly are terrible. I'm on record as saying I like the third one. So I just want to be very clear. I like the third one. No, no, I'm blocking that out. And I think that what's interesting about him doing a little bit of that background research is that, I mean, his quote to his father when he's sort of like going to pursue filmmaking wasn't that he was going to make the greatest film ever made. It was that he was going to be a millionaire before he's 30 Mm, years old. This is not a man who was going to be like, the O-Tour. And we learned last week, it was the last week, we learned with Sergio, Sergio Leone. I mean, he only made eight films too. I, you know, not everybody's a Clint Eastwood. Not everybody you know, produces like and stars friend, in, like, or Spielberg. Right. right. Prolific. Yeah. Brings out a film almost every year, every two years. Or like a, a Woody Allen, right. who just can't help, like is neurotic about it. George Lucas to me is more of a businessman. I mean, the idea of, you know, the legendary Star Wars negotiation of the franchising, uh, the merchandising, merchandising rights, rights, that yeah. is not a normal way to think in 1977 right right he's got a he's got a capitalist mind ironically as we'll talk about in this film and uh i just learned i forgot that he produced indiana jones but well, he I... takes 40 percent of the gross 40 yeah. percent. i mean the dude the dude knew what he was doing like a businessman side so if star wars failed i think he just makes he becomes like a kevin smith i think he just makes shitty indie films or he just becomes a business owner because mm. i don't think his his strength was necessarily making movies. I and mean, the only reason I think off the record, on the record, that Star Wars worked was because of his wife. I mean, Whoa. legend has it that she like rebuilt that thing, you know, for him right. uh, in spite of all his struggles with it. So, I don't know. I don't view him as a great director. I just view him as a, yeah. as a great mogul of Hollywood, as independent films as we'll talk about. I mean, he never took studio money. It's crazy. Yeah. I'm, crazy dude. I mean, that was in part because of this film actually and how Warner Brothers really he felt bungled the release and all that and all that uh, stuff. But oh yeah, that's right. Teachers, yeah. I can't wait for the letters to come in. No, I, I think you might be right there. I mean, the, th- the interesting thing, I guess, I've learned more so in the last few years. Like I knew they were all friends again from watching the Academy Awards every year. There's like the jokes and them being on stage. But like, I, I mean, I knew he was good friends with Spielberg. I actually never really under- knew that he was like such good friends with Coppola. But like they mm-hmm. are super tight, like like best friends almost. But whereas Coppola has been doing his weird like artsy fartsy things while owning a winery here for like the last 20 years. I think that maybe be the Lucas thing, right? He would have, yeah, like you said, owned a business, owned ILM thing, right? or whatever and been like, yeah, I'll just go, I'll d- dabble in this and like have bleep blorps going on in the screen and then I don't have to care because I don't have to worry about money. Maybe I'll just jump ahead. I mean, the other thing about George Lucas, which I thought was interesting when the research is when he starts studying film and he gets into this, you know, group and he's part of this new movement, there's something called pure cinema. Have you read about that? Well, I think I understand the concept, but go on. Yeah. So there was a big movement in French film about worshiping or practicing the art of making film for film's sake, as opposed to a narrative. Yeah. And so he's kind of like his, I think his creative approach and mind is very abstract. And I, I think that that's why his business side comes out stronger in his career, because my guess is, you know, if he's sitting down penning a story, it doesn't make any, any sense. <laughs> <laughs> and he, and this is why he makes special effects because he wants something that uh, is immersive. Um, he's not a storyteller. I mean, I'm paraphrasing this now, but there is like that classic story again from Star Wars of Harrison Ford being like, "You can write this shit, George, but no one can say it." Like that. That you know, with it, you know what I mean? Like he. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was just getting a paycheck too. But I mean, still. <laughs> 
But the, I actually, I think, I think what you're hitting on here is something that I've been, I guess, considering is that I think there is very few in the film world, very few of those, you use pure cinema, I'll say pure auteurs who are like, I can write, direct, produce, like the whole thing and not just have it fall apart. Like, I feel like they're, for most people, like I put like Spielberg in this camp, Scorsese in this camp, I would say even Clint Eastwood in this camp, where there has to be somebody else there who is like either writing the script or doing the cinematography or challenging them a little bit to be like, maybe we can do this this way. An editor that they partner up with that brings out that greatness from each other rather than just being like so totally focused. And we see that with the prequels, whether you're an apologist for them or not, that is very much the distillation of the George Lucas ethos. And the original trilogy is his ideas but using other people to like workshop. workshop it and make it the best that it possibly can be. I think you see that with everybody, uh, maybe with the exception of Spielberg. I mean, I don't really, and we haven't come across Spielberg film I know, yet. It's weird. We haven't really dug. <laughs> it's really weird. Yeah, we haven't really dug into Spielberg himself. But, you know, Coppola is the same thing. Uh, you know, it looks like this, what they call Dirty Dozen, such a gross nickname. <laughs> so frat boy. But this group of directors that's coming up together. And they're all uh, mingling as they're developing this big 60s, 70s push to reinvent cinema. Yeah. It's, it's new Hollywood is all wrapped up in this too. And as soon as they become set, they stop talking to each mm. other on, in a creative, at least credit. We don't hear about how Coppola jumped in for episode one, Phantom Menace was like, yo, Jar Jar Binks fucking cut that. That's right, bullshit. Right. They don't do that. And then Coppola's same thing. He starts petering out as well. But Spielberg doesn't. And I think that... Spielberg likely also created different groups of people to bounce ideas off of. He just, you know, in public eye seems more of that type. He doesn't seem like a shut-in. Mm. He seems like somebody that uh, gets out and, and talks to people. Well, and we saw that with James Cameron. James Cameron's been living in a submarine right, for like 15 right. years and well, like, he's gone crazy. I yeah? agree with that. Like Cameron is such an interesting example because I tend to actually like most of his movies, but the yeah. guy is bonkers off the wall crazy. Like he is like his own thing. <laughs> It's like, I'm going to film everything underwater and I'm going to create a new camera just so I can do it. I'm like, okay, go nuts, do it, I guess, if you want. But Spielberg, I think you're right. Like, there has been so many behind the scenes documentaries or YouTube videos I've come across where it's like, yeah, Spielberg just showed up on set and he talked to us. And like, he didn't really need to. He was either like a producer, kind of, or like didn't have anything to do with the film. He was just like talking to like his friend or something like that. And it's like, yeah, he came and talked to the cast, gave some tips and like, pieced out but i think yeah he's the he's the person who kind of wants to keep abreast of like the new people that are coming in and understand what the new filming techniques are and i think that's that is what sets him apart th from some of the the older generation he's like the tom hanks if tom right. hanks was a director well yeah. the, the tom hanks has directed a few films but i'm just saying he just looks like a nice guy yeah. walks around and everybody's like oh yeah that's a great idea but who knows <laughs> he's probably got skeletons too we'll find sure. out just, soon enough uh, uh, ask k capshaw have you ever seen a, a thx 1138 no yeah me neither no I've, i know of it i've known about it mostly because he used t he's a lot of he he regurgitates a lot of his concepts yeah. but thx became i mean a studio is there a film yeah, is there a film in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, yeah. 2010s that doesn't start with the THX right. logo? I mean, it's now like <laughs> Dolby is like what the sound houses yeah. mostly use. But yeah, there was a time and I always loved it. Like the, uh, like the <laughs> you know, that little noise like breaks your teeth as you're watching it. Yeah. <laughs> there was a time where it's like literally every movie it seems started with that THX opening. So there's that. Uh, THX is also used, I think, in a bunch of other lucas properties like star wars has it in the background or as a license plate in other movies and stuff like that so it's a it's a thing that keeps getting uh redone but 
I only know it from its infamy that didn't do very well. It's his first film coming out of school, sci-fi. Like I, that's, I know with the very basics, but I don't really know much about like the, the plot or, or anything else about this film. There's a plot. We uh, haven't seen it yet, Dave. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the deep and rich fiction. Deep and rich fiction. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess the time has come then. Let's go and thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking a lot more about THX 1138. God, I wonder if that drilling is going to come across in a recording, Dave. He really wants to get in here. Is he using his hand? I don't. I mean, what is he drilling is the, with? Is that what you call it? It's, again, uh, an appendage that has grown out of the blobbiness that is this being. You watch too much anime, Carl. I think, uh, I think we've got to move Sakura! on. Sakura! No, I don't know. <laughs> Oh, is that a Naruto I think. reference? I can't wow. <laughs> I mean, I'm allowed to get it because I'm a nerd, but you keep pretending you're not. And you I'm really above are. it, Dave. I'm above it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we are in our ad read section, so I should probably start off by letting you know that Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta based businesses and organizations. This week, I want to talk to you a little bit about ATB Cares. With ATB Cares, giving is easy. You can donate through ATB Cares, and ATB will match 20% of every dollar donated to eligible Albertan charities, maximizing the impact of your donation. If you're doing the math at home, that means if you give a dollar, they're going to give 20 cents. So visit atbcares.com to choose your cause and donate today. That sounds great. I could use 20 cents. I would love 20 cents. I'm going to talk to you about Rumi. Cold drafts, flickering lights, and where is that leak coming from? I have and to ask you like that in this spaceship right now, that is exactly yeah. what is going on. Flickering lights, <laughs> things are drafty. I don't know what's going on. You know what we should do? We should call Rumi's mm. Ask a Home Inspector Service for help. I don't know if they have service out here in space, well, but we, can ask. we should call. Find out. We can connect with a certified professional home inspector, spaceship inspector, by phone or video call and get your questions answered. Rumi will let you know what's easily fixable with a little DIY or when you might need to call in some professional help. Visit rumi.ca, that's R-U-M-I dot C-A, and book your Ask a Home Inspector appointment today. All right, Dave, uh, we have just finished watching THX 1138 here together on the couch. Uh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Well, okay, fine. Let me start off here then. I'm going to, of course, once again, be in my comfy chair of like the more positive person on the podcast. But even me, you will have noticed, Dave, I have it's so bad to admit this. At about the 20 minute mark of this movie, I fell completely and totally asleep <laughs> yes. i i mean the movie's longer than 20 minutes <laughs> it is it is <laughs> i conked out so badly like just like just sleep 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 and i woke up i'm like oh uh, we have to rewind this and go back <laughs> until the point where i actually remember where i had left off you better be careful one of these days i'm going to make sure you never open your eyes again my feelings are this i am not a big fan of this movie However, there are a few things that I think that elevate it from like pure, complete trash. I think that this is more maybe tedious than it is like bad as far as a movie goes. I also am very confident in saying that had anybody else directed this movie other than George Lucas, 
nobody would watch this movie nowadays. No one would even remember mm. this movie. It feels like a student film. It is a student film. Well, I guess film. technically it is a student film. It was a short first, and then they expanded it to a feature length. And it, it feels very much like any experience I've had in university watching student films, which is like, let's be kind of pretentious and, uh, what's a good word, uh, indulgent in some of our ideas without there being any type of, like, interesting plot to latch on to. You can definitely tell that he was being influenced by 1984 while making this movie. Um, and that's actually... Uh, it was 1971, <laughs> so I don't think he could... <laughs> I know. Wild, huh? For me, at least, I think that the second half is actually better than the first half, but that's actually when some Ooh. of the action actually starts happening, where he's, like, running away, and there's car chases, and there's at least things feeling like there's happening in the movie rather than it being like hushed voices talking like this and they're super serious and they rub our cheeks together rub our cheeks together and stuff we are allowed to have sex if we stop doing the drugs i think it's like maybe this has been more common for you dave once i did some more research on this movie there's a few things that i actually started to respect about it a little bit more such as the donald pleasant's character for instance like every one of his anything that he says is actually from a richard nixon speech so it's a very intentional what they're including into this and what they're criticizing like, and stuff in this movie would people even know that even I, in that I bet era you they would i bet you nowadays if someone did the same thing with like donald trump quotes like the people who are like online twitter constantly freaking out absolutely would know that those are quotes they're coming from 50 years removed no like that context is completely broken there's no way that people would know that unless it's actually pointing out to them like i don't like this movie like i, I don't like this movie but I'm, but just like straw dogs from last week i honestly actually i think straw dogs broke me because i don't actually even know really how to rate this because there's some technical things that i actually really enjoy and like and i think robert duvall is very good in this movie but then there is everything else <laughs> that is like, don't really feel engaged. I would never choose to watch this movie again. Yeah. So I don't know. Where, where are you at with this first initial watching of THX? I mean, it's kind of the same, but angrier. I mean, this number one, before I did the research, the first thing, as soon as it's turned on, I was like, this is a student film. Right. This is a, a student of film f film because you pointed out exactly. It's pretentious. It is unformed. It is naive. It is bludgeoning you with capitalist and religious iconography. It, it's fucking horrifying. It's so boring. Uh, nothing actually makes any sense. It's inherently racist. There's a lot of strange moments where all the entertainment characters are like naked and black and everybody else is bald and white. Like it's just such a weird thing to sit through. I also watched it in sections Less so by choice, but thankfully, my uh, living arrangement at the time demanded me to sit through this in 20-minute sections, which is the only reason why I finished mm. the film. There are, and you know, I, I'm willing to agree with you that there are hints that George Lucas would go on to make, not just American Graffiti, but you know, specifically Star Wars. I mean, there well, are yeah. aspects of the cinematography, of the scale, and we talked a little bit about this with Red Sun, where... If you get a certain type of director, you lose you lose that sense of sort of um, space. And George Lucas understands that visually. And we talked about his obsession with, uh, what was it called? Pure cinema or whatever yeah. that I mentioned like 10 minutes ago and forgot about. You can see that. Like he loves the craft of shooting the film. Yeah. It's kind of like how I make fun of Wong Kar Wai. There's like, when you watch a Wong Kar Wai film, I mean, it's like visual candy. Mm -hmm. It titillates your eyeballs. 
But for me, I don't understand any of the stories and they make me upset. It's kind of like that. I'm watching this film and I'm like, oh, I really want to hate it. And I do. But uh, there are pretty parts to yeah. it. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. It, just, it doesn't make sense. This movie should right, not yeah, be shown I mean, it's, anymore. I, that's what I kind of said about like the pretentiousness. Even like, I, at least I, I believe I understand the reason of calling them like letters and numbers, right? They've lost their individuality. They're just these cogs in the machine, whatever. But it still is like the worst thing in your fiction is like, so wait, what, what, what's their name? Who is this person? L-U-N or sorry, L-U-H and this guy's S-E-N and T-H-X. When it's just random letters and numbers and stuff together, it's just like, it just feels odd and off-putting and stuff like that uh, for the movie to be brought around them. Even in like, I don't know. I guess the same thing happens in Star Wars when you have C-3PO and R2-D2. But yeah, but, but those are like very specific characters and everyone else around them at least has an actual name. I mean, maybe that's a lesson he learned in this, which is that you have to kind of bludgeon the idea of dehumanizing by applying it to non-human characters. I mean, I don't know. Well, I don't know. So I was going to wait to talk about this specifically actually a little bit later, but because we're kind of here already, like my major thesis for this movie honestly and why i think it's just an interesting thing to watch if you are a star wars fan this is probably the most non-commercial movie you could make right this is never going to have a broad audience it's not even and maybe it was trying to be but i just don't think there's any conceivable history where this is going to grab like a lot of people to want to come to the theater to watch it but everything that he is talking about in this movie is in star wars but that's the more populous version of this story. What story? Well, scrappy person against the empire. These people are that like is people. So abstract. Okay, you know, keep going. I'm just I mean, trying to understand si- what you mean by story, because this. Well, I mean, I, I mean, the Star Wars are not related at all. I so. think the themes are all there, and you can watch okay. it. When I actually watched this video this week, of is actually James Cameron interviewing George Lucas, and he talks about this. Like my biggest thing that I was always fascinated by was the small people without any power, rebelling against the large people. And in Vietnam, you saw it. You had the American Empire going against the country of Vietnam. And who won that war? Vietnam won that war. And so he constantly makes these stories in Star Wars and in this, where you have the person with no power being the one who actually wins against like the big conglomerates. Taychex, all it is, is again, it's basically 1984. I referenced it already, which is THX, Robert Duvall, is like, I don't want to be a nameless nothing anymore. And he runs away. Like, that is what the story is. That's the basic story of this. There's, there's nothing more to it than that. It's just that in Star Wars, and you add in a bunch more characters in, in, into, into that narrative. The Star Wars narrative is different because Luke Skywalker is not a nobody, right? He's, well, he's some he's, hidden descendant sure. of what was the royal family, let's say. He's endowed with the supernatural ability to bend fate to his will. And despite the sort of power dynamics between a rebellion and an empire, they're fundamentally different movies because Star Wars is a fairy tale. Sure. I mean, it's it's an American fairy tale, not like a European one where everybody gets ground into a meat grinder <laughs> and thrown out to teach you that you shouldn't be an asshole. That one's like the beginning of blockbusters where everybody needs to leave the theater and like, oh yeah, life isn't so bad. We're going to be okay. This movie is nothing like that. I mean, the only parallels are that this Robert Duvall character has no personality. That's it. You know, there's a there's a big uh, industrial complex that has broken down their individual identities. That's not even true in Star Wars. There's an empire, 
but each planet has their own culture. Each each character well, has their sure, own sure. Yeah, backstory. Star Wars has like a broader wider narrative and stuff like that but the core story is i am starting with nothing and i am going off on an adventure and leaving my my old world behind it's like your class fine i mean yeah you can have your opinion i think that's insane and i think the fact that george lucas is saying about his own work says a lot i mean he's he made phantom menace the guy has lost context with reality. Well, okay. So. I mean, yeah. for, even without that context, I think that the the Vietnam narrative is actually 100% in, on display inside of this movie. And it has to be. You're literally inside the middle of that war. All of his generation was rebelling against this at the time. Everyone wanted to make movies to push the, um, the hippie movement forward because they're all inside of that movement anyways. There's no way you're making a movie at their age, at this time in American history, without that kind of seeping into the art that you're making. Whether you think that the actual plot things are similar, what my main point was this. He makes this movie, it's a non-commercial, and it's like, okay, what do I have to do to make my million dollars before I'm 30 years old? And that leads to Star Wars. I think that's the through line that you see. If this movie, if this movie had been the hit, he would have made these movies continually to make more and more money. Star Wars would never have been made. So regardless of what happens, I know I'm anything that happens to this movie, then it proves my point. But it's like, had this been successful, I don't think Star Wars gets made. Because this is not oh, fine, successful, Star Wars, of course, gets made. Because now he's trying to figure out how to actually make it. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not going to disagree that this is a foundational building block that leads us to Star Wars. But he made American Graffiti in the middle. And I think to... As we brought up, you know, after he makes Star Wars and hits it big, he doesn't want to direct films anymore. Mm -hmm. Even if this caught an audience and if we were watching 71 movies, maybe it would have. I mean, we were watched a lot of movies that are challenging and apparently made more money than they definitely would have in this era. I mean, but this movie's not very good. So it was never going to happen. Number yeah. one. I mean, but I mean I need... it's a student film redevelopment because Francis Ford Coppola is like, no, you got to go to the next stage, dude. Don't just make a 50 minute short for your graduate thesis. Yeah. Like, let's add on uh, 90 more minutes of garbage and then put it out in the theater and see what happens. You know? I'd be happy to eat nothing but garbage all day. They're reading a lot into it, I think. And this is why this movie is still shown. People are trying to recontextualize this stuff because George Lucas became such a mogul. But this is essentially uh, a throwaway, you know, art house student flick that, uh, yeah, he had talent afterwards to make American Graffiti and Star Wars. But like you said, if he had never made Star Wars, this thing, and never mind people never hearing about it. Someone would have burned this. Oh, they would it's, not have. Stop it. Okay. Come on. It's garbage. It's a waste of time. I, I, I'm not that negative on this film. My major question then is this. This this is absolute. Like, again, I'm arguing for a movie they don't really like all that much, but. Classic Kyle. I'm trying to think like fundamentally, and maybe it's just story for you. Fundamentally, how is this different than other super slow moving sci-fi movies? Well, oh, give me Blade yeah, Runner, me Solaris, 2001. Those are the three that instantly come to mind. Those are long. Barely anything happens. <laughs> There's not much happening is different than having no narrative. Sure. And I think that the problem with this film is that in spite of itself, I mean, it's trying to grab some strings nothing actually makes any sense. We're kind of put into the situation with uh, Robert Duvall's THX or Thux or whatever his name's supposed to be character. But his whole experience is just so effusive, diffusive. No, I, it's just broken. I think abstract you know? is probably the better word because I still don't really know what he's doing. Like I don't, re- That's the I thing. really don't know what his job is or what the, like the broader 
societal structure is other than again cogs in the machine there's people overlooking commenting on what he's doing but there's no right. no context I mean, given about like how does this society work and what is it about i'm a huge blade runner fan and for me blade runner also uh very quote-unquote philosophical in that it's not meant to be you know a riveting blockbuster drama but it is a film that's trying in its own sort of cyberpunk and beautifully shot way to uh, talk about the human condition and to make you question yourself. Um, THX can't do that. It's just not ready. It shows where his seated thought is. And there are, yeah, like you brought up, very important themes that are coming out of civil rights movement, him as a young director, him as wanting to be a mogul. You know, there's clearly some um, expertise in how he's able to see shots. But as a thought, as a piece of art, it's unformed, much like the fellow that's trying to break into our ship. It's yeah. gelatinous. Actually, that's the major thing for me. For whatever reason, there's been a few different podcasts that have brought this similar topic up. And I, I don't know if we really need to go down this road about like the difference between the books 1984 and Brave New World and which one of those actually became <laughs> what's modeling our, what our society is modeled after nowadays. To me... This feels like I've read 1984 once. I'm going to make a movie that's based on it. Let's take the imagery from that book, but not really go full force into the critique that that book actually was the time that it came out. Because if you're talking about, again, Vietnam specifically, but in more general, being a part of America in the 70s and feeling like disenfranchised by the narrative that your previous generations were like, you just go, you get a job, you become part of the American machinery. And that's feeling so foreign to what you want to be as a human being. There's stuff there that you can delve into and talk about and use, but I don't really feel like that ever comes across. It's more visuals and being solemn. And for me, that's just not very interesting narratively. All of the other stuff is the shoehorn of his fame, you know, where we want to backdate our interpretation of his intent. Who gives a shit? It's just a movie, right? And I think that what I mean by that is that it's a movie that he made in his youth. And whatever he says about it, I mean, this is the guy that burned the original. I mean, I'm sure he's kept he them. I don't think he burned like it. I think, honestly, the I The original actually reels think, of Star Wars. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, Disney has claimed that they are going to release the original trilogy at some point. I don't know what that actually means, but. This is a guy that already has a problem facing himself, who's now uh, explaining 60 years later, 50 years later, what he meant for this film to be. It's bullshit. We're reading too much into it. At the end of the day, this is a film that I might've written when I was 20. You know, oh, the man sucks. Catholic religion's fucking killing us. We're all just cogs in the machine, man. You know, what if we all had numbers for names and we just had to walk around? Like, that's what this movie is. He does, as we, as, as I learned, have this childhood fascination with race cars and he actually almost died mm. racing a car. So, you know, he put in race cars uh, to, it's, it's it's such a weird scene. You know, the so-called action chase scene comes out of nowhere. And why are the even cars for a world where everybody just walks around in white hallways? But regardless. But I actually think the white hallway is kind of a cool effect. <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's just me. But that's been done before. I mean, we saw kind of similar things in Andromeda Strain. Yeah, I think yeah. Andromeda Strain is a superior uh, sci-fi thriller than this thing was. Because it's developed. It's got a... It's got a storyline, it's got, you know, a competent director, it's got, it's got everything. It even has uh, philosophical discussions about, you know, how human beings interrelate with each other and, you know, mental illness and all that kind of stuff. This is um, immature, is what it yeah, is. Yeah, I think for me, what would have maybe elevated this a bit is if there was conversation that made sense. You know what I mean? Like a little bit of a give yeah. and take between 
THX and another power. Well, the Donald Pleasance character, like have that actually be a battle or a fight of ideas rather than it just being kind of weird soliloquies that both of them end up having. Yeah. Over time. I think they wasted. Yeah, they wasted a good Donald Pleasance and Robert Duvall. I mean, they were both good yeah. in it. Before the Godfather, talking, can you imagine? Like this is before he even did the Godfather. <laughs> they're like talking around each other because the script also isn't fully baked. Right. So we're supposed to get a contrast between maybe Sen, I think his name is Sen, yeah. uh, is supposed to be manipulative and self-serving, but you don't really understand what that means philosophically. Like, Because this is supposed to be, again, in a student sense, different representations of probably schools of thought that each of the characters represents, right? Like, the female is supposed to likely embody something about probably very sexist, like a woman's role, empathy, all this stuff, because she seems to be driving this need for sexual desire. We have a THX who's supposed to be this, you know, pseudo woke dude that eventually fights against the man, total bullshit. We've got Sen, who's like the, you know, self-serving. I, don't, I mean, there are these tropes that are built into them. They're just not executed very well. Yeah. And then the uh, black hologram character. What the fuck was that all about? I mean, why put that in there? Well, that's another thing it's I don't so really strange. get because is the intent that he's still a hologram even when he's running around with him? I don't know. Okay. I mean, he's not in the car when it blows up. Right. So, it's, so maybe. It's such a weird... It, nothing makes sense. It's it's just a dumb movie, Kyle. There's nothing to apologize no, for. No, okay, but here's the thing. This is the thing. If I bone, I need to pick with you. Because <laughs> uh, again, I, I, I agree with so much of what you say, but then you throw in something like, there can't be different readings to a movie other than yours sometimes. And so... <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, I'm right. Though. Yeah, I'm I mean, totally that's... right. I'm just saying that like, even in the in the history of criticism, there's always like here's the feminist take on this or the queer take mm. on this or whatever. I just feel like I, I agree and like whatever his intent was, I don't actually really care what George Lucas's intent was with this film. All I can do is like from my life experience, from the movies that I've watched, the stuff that I like, I can bring stuff into a movie experience where like okay, this speaks to me in this way. You might disagree, but it's like at least it speaks to me in this way, and that's the only way I know how to speak about movies. Whether he intended it or not, I don't know. I don't really care about that question. What, what I'm, I'm going to push more and more towards, I think that this is. It feels to me like this is a young guy rallying against like the American government and the feeling of capitalism, I guess, for lack of a better terminology. I don't think it's executed well, but I think that is what is trying to be attempted here. And I think you're right on many accounts in, in the sense that, A, if I have an opinion, it's because I think I'm right. <laughs> and if I didn't, then we wouldn't have a podcast, right? right, right, right. right? It would be so boring. Uh, B, what you're describing is... A, a decent reading because I think that is what he's trying to do, like anti-capitalist, whatever. But I just describe that as 20-year-old white male, sure. right? That's, it's not unique. And the third thing is you're talking about sort of like you bringing your own way of experiencing films. And my only sort of rebuttal to that is if we really want to do that, and maybe post-COVID we can, is we need to record this after we actually watch <laughs> sure, this film. Sure, sure, sure. Because one of the things that you love to do, Kyle, is you love to research this shit. And I think it changes the way you interpret Sometimes. the, the yeah, movie. Yeah. Uh, so, like, for example, with this film, all you're talking about is the research you did after to recontextualize what you watched and right. fell asleep yeah. with. I agree. I agree. I think if I had called you, like, as you were falling asleep, we would be agreeing a lot more. <laughs> I think I think that may be right. I But again, having received an English degree, 
Yes, I'll wait for the laughter to subside. Have you have you read English? Have you read as English? They say in English? No, I just mean yeah. that like that is what you have to do with older texts a lot. Like if I read Sir Gawain sure. and the Green Knight from the Middle Ages, I have literally no context on what is being written and why it's being written, who's even writing it. So I need to have that historical context to even engage with the text in the first place. Same with Shakespeare. Well, same two, with all the other stuff. Yeah, and I don't think that what you what you're suggesting to do is wrong. I just think that those are two different conversations. I think that. I think if we talk about somebody who opens Shakespeare for the first time and kind of fights their way through the prose because it uses a different form of English, but you can actually understand it because yeah. it's still in English and how they experience that versus someone who studies both what the grammar is meant to say, right. how the characters developed, what the political you know era was talking about with male and fe female royalty and all that kind of social dynamics. Of course, they'll experience it differently. But it does, it shouldn't negate one or the other. I mean, I think that's the difference between us. I don't like to research any of this stuff. I like to just watch it. <laughs> just wash over me, man. Get, just wash yeah, over me. Yeah, and I get upset about it. And then when we talk about it, then I'm like, oh, it's like when we were talking to uh, Jordan about McCabe and Mrs. Miller, mm -hmm. you know? I'm like, ah, movie's fine. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know. And then we were talking about it. I'm like, oh, wow. You know, when you learn more about how it was made, what it was meant to do, how it figured in that era. Yeah, that is interesting. And I'm glad if anyone listens to these that they will get both sides. But Well, I think the the other thing, especially for 1971 that we're in right now, the vast, vast majority of these are movies that I'm watching for the first time. Mm. And I do feel that in some cases, I don't fully appreciate a film until I've seen it a second and sometimes even a third time. The ones who I want to go back to. It's not like I watch every movie multiple times. But I felt that same way with like Blade Runner. I've talked about Casablanca on this show. It took me two or three times to like fully like understand and like, okay, no, I get this. I understand what they're going for and why we should probably have Sunday Blade Sunday higher up on our list <laughs> than what it, it is will. currently. I know. I, this is why definitely, at least for 1971, we're going to have a big revisionist episode at the end of the year because uh, exactly what you're talking yeah. about. The context, never mind even researching the history, just watching all the films right. that came out this year, you're like, oh, wait a second. That was better than I thought. Because <laughs> this, <laughs> this yeah. is shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's going to be interesting if we do another year where I have seen like the majority of the movies. It's mm -hmm. like, that's just going to be a different, I think, conversation. You watch what I tell you to watch and you get to grin and bury it. Uh, but let's do some backstory here. Dave, uh, THX was released on March 11th, 1971. It is rated 6.7 on IMDb. On Metacritic, it has a 75. And on Rotten Tomatoes, from 63 critics, it has 86%. And from 25,000 plus users, it's at 74%. Sorry. It's currently available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can also buy or rent it on iTunes, uh, buy or rent it on YouTube. In Canada, currently, there is not a way for you to stream it. It's budget, I found out. I feel like this is more of a marketing ploy than anything else, but apparently its budget was $777,777. Boo. It made $2.4 million, or people watch 16 it. adjusted for inflation. Again, I don't know what that translates to number of uh, people, but its plot description is, in the 25th century, a time when people have designations instead of names, a man... THX 1138 and a woman, LUH 3417, rebel against their rigidly controlled society. I think uh, to your point here before, Dave, I think we should make Hamlet, but just have them be numbers instead of <laughs> character names. The stars Robert Duvall as THX, Maggie McComey as LUH, Donald Pleasance as SEN, and Don Pedro Colley as SRT. Uh, anything you want to say about these actors? Robert Duvall, we talked about in The Godfather. 
He's a drunk. He fights a lot. He's a Republican. Apparently, he's direct descendant of Robert E. Lee. So fantastic good for him. Um, okay, well, we've talked about him. I want to talk about Donald Pleasance. I yeah, I love. I Donald wrote in Pleasance. my write up that you were going to have a huge boner for this guy because yeah. he uh, is the Halloween guy. He's the but Halloween you know guy. what? I'm just going to I'm going to step a step step aside, and you can talk about this crazy dude. I've talked <laughs> about this much more popular, like very very popular podcast, like at the top of the charts. Blank check on this show before, and they're currently going through John Carpenter. And actually, there's some interesting corollary here because his first movie was this movie called Dark Star, which was also it comes sorry comes out in 1974, but also was a short film that they didn't expand it to feature length. So I don't know if this was just a thing that happened in like the oh, early really? to mid 70s where they went to film schools and were like, "You're the next director." I love John Carpenter a because of his like genre stuff that he does, but also that he uh, usually is the composer for all of his films, like Clint Eastwood. <laughs> so it's kind of fun. But yeah, Donald Pleasance. Of course, in the original Halloween, and then kind of is in, I think, six of the sequels, if I'm not mistaken, uh, four? After four or five. Anyways, oh, yeah. he goes completely watched any of them. insane by the end. If, if Everyone should watch the first. I, the first Halloween movie is legitimately in my top 20 films of all time. Like, I love it that much. But that's mostly where I know Donald Pleasance from, uh, is that movie in particular. He's uh, Blofeld. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we talked a, qu- quickly about him being... One of the Blofelds in the early James Bond films. Always plays kind of a creep, honestly. There was a quote he said uh, that I pulled up that he, because he's so crazy and intense looking, that he was typecast in his early career as an evil, insane person. Yeah. But ironically, after Halloween, I didn't, I haven't watched him, but apparently he's the good guy in him. Yeah. And so then he became typecast as the uh, heroic old man afterwards. Dr. So. Loomis. That's what his name is in those <laughs> movies. Oh, and- uh, speaking of Loomis, apparently in four different productions, his character has the last name Loomis. Yeah. Oh, I remember that too. Like, it's just weird, right? It's like the same thing. There's been four or five movies that uh, Tom Cruise has played Jack. <laughs> That's just his first name is Jack. <laughs> uh, there's there's somewhere. I have a feeling they changed the name because the actor can't acclimatize uh, and they just use the actor's names. <laughs> but I can't remember. Uh, but it's probably like Steven Seagal where he always has to be Steven or something. <laughs> yeah, it's probably always Steven. Otherwise, he just doesn't look at the camera. Bob. Bob. Steve. Steven. Steve. Yes. Yeah, yes. Snapping fingers. <laughs> um, and then he shakes his wrists and he breaks your arm. The only thing I could find about Maggie is that she did not act after this film. I, that's the biggest thing I was going to bring up. I think this is her only movie, isn't it? She's actually pretty good in this. I mean, it's kind of like we're, uh, I'm noticing with 70s female actresses, female actors, they're pretty talented, but maybe it's the patriarchal structure of acting, or maybe it's just a personal experience thing. They get typecast too quickly and they seem to, you know, just not yeah. enjoy the process of it. Also, when we read about Dustin Hoffman, I think the it's just a general gross area to be an actress, uh, era to be an actress in. I mean, there's probably a lot of yeah, I mean, grossness. She also acted and, opposite Robert Duvall in her first movie, so who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't know anything about her, so I'm not going to imply too much, but it is interesting because I thought she was, I mean, for the shitty material she's given, I actually thought she was quite good in it for the 10 minutes that she's allowed to be in it, Uh, but she never acted again. There is a credit uh, in 2000 for the Boston Strangler or something, Mm. but I don't watch movies like that, so I don't know. Ian Wolfe's interesting. He's old. Who's he in the movie? Uh, I don't know which character he played, but he's credited. And he was born in 1896. Oh, that's Cal. wild. <laughs> it always freaks <laughs> me one? out. Well, not freaks me out, but people who were born like late in the uh, 1800s, 19th but century. still making movies in the 70s is like, 
Oh, does that yeah. work out? Yeah, he apparently has an acting credit in 1990 where he would have been 94 or something Jeez like Louise. that, which is crazy. Um, the only interesting thing about him is that he was in Mutiny on the Bounty, You Can't Take It With You, and Mrs. Miniver, which are all Oscar-winning yeah. uh, films. Well, Mrs. Miniver is great, by the way. It's a great old movie. He's got 400... It's the classic old actors. 400 film TV credits. And because it's an old-fashioned actor, he had only one wife, some kids, and he died peacefully. There's no fucking drama. Imagine that, Kyle. <laughs> imagine. Imagine. <laughs> Uh, just to go quickly back to Maggie McComey, just from her Wikipedia, apparently, I'm just pulling this up. After THX, she decided not to pursue film and instead did like a local theater in Portland and has an adult daughter and two grandchildren. So good for her. I mean, she remains sane, mm. which is great. I only want to bring Don Pedro Kali, who is SRT or the hologram through for no really apparent reason. Asterix, asterix. We'll talk about it maybe in a few weeks. Uh, I'm rewatching all the Planet of the Apes movies, the original Planet of the Apes movies, and he is in the Buck Wild sequel, the first sequel to Planet of the Apes. We need to talk about that movie someday, Dave. It is so <laughs> wild that movie was even made by a major motion picture studio. Uh, anyways, he's in it for like five minutes <laughs> oh, okay. in, in that movie. Yeah, he's credited. I looked it up, but there's not a lot of information on him either. So Earth is a planet of apes to me. So, of course, story by George Lucas, screenplay by Walter Murch, directed by George Lucas. This movie, Dave, came about because of the movie Finian's Rainbow. Finian's Rainbow is or was a 1947 Broadway musical but in 1968, it was made into a film directed by an up-and-comer by the name of Francis Ford Coppola. I'm sorry, how do you pronounce sorry, that again? Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> so Coppola was playing the studio game, but just had this miserable time for his first two movies. It was just like he was a hired gun directing what the studio asked him to do. So he had these hippie ideals, like literally like came to the set barefoot, big long beard, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and if the person starring in Finian's Rainbow is Fred Astaire, who is like dressed in a suit, conservative values, like they did not get along. Uh, Literally dances exactly yeah. the same in every film. Yeah. Wow. I love Fred Astaire, wow. but he's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. No, he's a machine. Movie was a terrible experience, uh, and he vowed to take the money that he made from there and create a new Hollywood, which he definitely was at the forefront of. But on that film, Binion's Rainbow, uh, he meets this young kid by the name of George Lucas. Lucas was still taking classes at the University of Southern California, and it was one which was, by the way, one of the first schools to offer programs devoted to filmmaking. And it was there that he directed a short film called Electronic Labyrinth, THX 1138 4EB. Rolls right off the tongue. Uh, good pause. Yeah, good pause. Uh, it won first prize at the Student Film Festival, which gave him a scholarship backed by Warner Brothers to observe and work on a film. And Lucas himself picked Finian's Rainbow because he knew that Coppola was directing it. Coppola was already revered amongst the film students of USC because he had gone there himself, graduated, and had like made it in Hollywood. So he, he was kind of like big man on campus. So Coppola and Lucas meet on this film and become fast friends. In 1969, after he had made Finian's Rainbow, Coppola co-founds the movie studio with George Lucas called American Zoetrope. Which, by the way, still exists. That, that is still a what? studio that makes... Basically, Coppola films, not just Francis Ford Coppola films, but like Sofia Coppola's so, films yeah. and uh, the other guy. Schwartzman. Well, Schwar Nick Cage. Yeah, they're all they're all related. No, there's a, his son. Oh, I forget what his name is. 
Uh, so with the express purpose, they were making the studio to get around the studio control that Hollywood had them in and to make commercial films, quote unquote, commercial films that would then be able to fund weird art films that they wanted to make. Uh, amazingly, they strike this deal with Warner Brothers to release seven movies. Presumably, Warner Brothers would have nothing to say. They were just going to release them into theaters. So they make this seven-picture deal, given complete creative control, uh, and THX would be the first film inside of that deal. So Lucas does a script, and both he and Coppola agree that it's not good. <laughs> so they get Walter Murch to punch it up. Uh, this is Murch's first script ever, and he would do an uncredited rewrite of The Black Stallion in 1979. And then, this is such a Kyle thing I'm about to say, I have no idea if you know what this is, Dave. His huge claim to fame, I'm saying this very loosely, his huge claim to fame would be as the writer and director of Return to Oz in 1985. Terrible movie. Love that fucking movie. I love it so <laughs> much. I love that movie. It's not good, but I love it so much. I love it to pieces. It's on Disney Plus if anyone wants to go and watch Return to Oz. He only has one more writing credit, which is for a documentary called Coup 53, which was released in 2019. So, I mean, he's still around. No, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Walter Murch is known for something completely different. Oh, well, you can tell me because I guess I don't know. He's like considered the one of the greatest sound editors in Hollywood. Oh, so sorry, sorry, sorry. I have this written out. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Because I'm like, you can't pull out now. <laughs> That's right. I, Especially with the, the the little bit at the I end. I might have written the this. The little bit at the end is so into your world. Yeah, I might have written this a, a week and a half ago, Dave, when we actually watched this movie <laughs> and have forgotten what I had written down. So, Merch is actually way better known as an editor and sound mixer. Uh, he would, of course, partner with Coppola for Apocalypse Now, where he would win an Oscar for sound mixing. But he did the edits for Captain EO for Disneyland. Would be would edit movies like Ghost, Godfather Part Three, First Night, The English Patient, where he'd also win Oscars all, for sound mixing and film editing. All the Godfathers. Yeah. Um, he does the talent of Mr. Ripley, Jarhead, and most recently Tomorrowland was his last editing job that he took. However, okay, so yes, that is what Walter Birch is much more probably known for is his sound mixing, editing stuff. I'll just throw this in here for the company you used to work for. He won an Oscar for editing Cold Mountain. Right. On a Power Mac G4 yes, yes, yes. with version 4 of Final Cut. And uh, people were like, how did you do that? Because that is a normal, desktop, normal mm -hmm. desktop computer and you did a feature length film. And so that's who this guy is. I don't know how we know this, Dave, but if you ever visit One Infinite Loop in uh, Cupertino, California, the headquarters of Apple Incorporated. Oh, we're allowed to say that Yeah, now. you can, when you, when you walk into campus and you have to have a badge card or else you can't go much further than that, but you can badge in. And then directly to your right is a glass case that has a few Emmys and I think an Oscar in it. It definitely has the Emmys there that Apple won for developing Final Cut. I thought you were going to go with Glass Cage of Emotion, but uh, disappointed again. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know. You have to pay five ninety nine a year in order to have those emotions. So <laughs> You make jokes now, but you're only a few months away from offering an app purchases. Yeah, so he's a, some kind of like trailblazer with computers. He also has this interesting distinction, four different Oscars for four different editing systems. So Moviola, KM Flatbed, Avid, and Final Cut Pro. That's cool. So he's like, yeah, he doesn't just, you know, he's not this guy. He's always he on invented the top of new things. Yeah, he apparently invented different splicing techniques, which is why he's such a great editor. And Premiere uh, Pro uses something called Trim Edit. 
ripple trim. Anyways, one of the tools was invented by him. Oh, interesting. Because yeah, so he he was like, if you're gonna make Premiere Pro and you, this is a a key thing that's missing in digital uh, movie editing. Mm-hmm. So he worked with Adobe to develop what's now considered a an important cut tool. He's like the Ken Burns of editing. <laughs> <laughs> they should call it the merch cut. Why don't they call it like merch cutting? He's got his own name for it, actually, but Mm -hmm. it's Adobe. They need to license it. Otherwise, we wouldn't pay for the cloud. The cloud. The cloud. Okay, getting back to this movie. Lucas's vision had it that every single actor needed their head shaved, like for real have their head shaved. So as this publicity stunt, he actually had the main actors go and shave their heads in public spaces and then like have magazines come photograph it and then use that as marketing purposes. Uh, To fill out the cast, I don't know if you read this, Dave. So out of the main cast, do you know where they got all the other bald people? Oh, no, I didn't. Please say, don't say cancer words. No, he went to the nearby addiction recovery hospital, which was called Synanon, which would eventually be revealed to be a cult. Good. Uh, So if you want to spend the rest of your day ruining your life, go read their Wikipedia article about what that cult actually went on to do. (laughs) But their members are in this movie as the extras, which is pretty wild. (laughs) Good. Uh, Good. Feels like it, honestly. mm -hmm. When you're watching it a little bit. For the character of Sen, uh, that's the Donald Pleasant's character. We talked about how these are ripped from Richard Nixon's speeches. It took about a year to edit this film together, interestingly enough, with all the stuff wow. that they had shot. Once they had put that together, added the special effects, sound editing, turned over to Warner Brothers. Surprise, surprise. This seems to be like the recurring theme here the last few weeks. They hated it. They demanded that Coppola turn the film over to them so that their in-house editors could chop it up and release it into theaters. So the thing is, is that they eventually take out four minutes of material in the theatrical cut of this movie, which to me doesn't sound like a huge amount. And seeing the movie now, you could probably lose four minutes that I wouldn't notice. So I don't know. Yeah. It was considered a bit of a flop when it came out, mostly because that number, I I was supposed to say this and I forgot, it actually didn't even make a million dollars when it was first released. That's why it was considered Uh a big flop. The reason it gets up to 2.1 million is that after Star Wars came out six years later, they re-released it into theaters, put the George Lucas name on there, and it made a bunch more money just based off of that name. As we have discovered... There is actually no way to watch that theatrical cut, technically. So I don't know what the theatrical cut looks like. Because in 2004, it was tinkered with again. Released as the director's cut. Added in CGI elements into the movie. As well as different like sounds and stuff that apparently they put in too. So as of today, no way to watch the original theatrical cut that I'm aware of. Uh, but that is where we are at here today. I think that the CGI looks awful. <laughs> In, in the end like scenes. Like you're watching the prequels. Yeah. I, will, I will say, uh, I think that the car chase stuff is actually done fairly well. Um, sure. Most of that is practical, especially if you read up on the stunt guy who flips over uh, overhead of the bike when it crashes, which was not supposed to happen. But he was mad when people ran into the shot because he was like, no, that would look so cool on, on camera. So that's why it cuts away pretty quickly after he flies over the top of his handlebars. Uh, I see. People are like, oh my God, he's going to yeah. die. So I think that stuff is actually handled pretty good. It's like the only time I was like, oh, okay, so this is getting interesting. And then the movie is basically over uh, once they get to the end of that thing. But uh, The movie is over when it started. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, this is the thing. You see that he has talent, right? Yeah. As bad as this film is. So this is not a million dollar duck. No. But it's not good. <laughs> and if you're listening, don't watch it. Uh, no, actually, here's the thing. I'm going to disagree with that. I am also saying it's not good. 
I do think if you are a Star Wars fan, you should check this out. Honestly, you'll kind of see some similarities here and there. It's a good way to well, like fill out that idea of George Lucas as a creator. But like, it's yeah, I I actually feel dumb because I bought this movie on iTunes <laughs> and I'm never going to watch this movie again. Like, I'm never going to sit down and watch THX 1138. I will further make the addendum that if, like Kyle, you're an apologist for the prequels, <laughs> then you might want to watch this film. But if, like me, you're sane, uh, skip it because it's not good. There are, uh, yeah, it's not terrible. It's just not a good use of 90 minutes. There's so many more mm -hmm. things. You can, you can take a nap. Sure. Naps are good. Uh, I don't know if it was a digital effect added later or not, but the holograms look really, really great. So I, the holograms like, I don't know really if good. that was that added has to be in fake. later. Yeah, that had, that had to be touched up. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of the remasters of Star Wars. It's too right. clean. You know, you, there's no way to make that effect in 1970. That's the biggest thing, honestly, is like you have that natural grain of 1970s film. And then those digital effects come in like, whoa, what is going on? <laughs> this is way too smooth I mean, to be inside this film. You can film. do better. Yeah, you can do better than that. And they're not, they're never, it's like Star Wars. They're never scenes that Needed. make any impact in the film. They're just, like, it's just rubbing shit in your face. And like, oh, do you like that? Do you like that? Do you like that? So if you want to like hear a, me like be like a super apologist for a different film series, this is why you should watch the original five Planet of the Apes movies. Most of those sequels also are not good, but boy, are they at least interesting. Like, they are so <laughs> fascinating as just, like, an idea that somebody had, like, what if this happens? And it's like, I want to talk about this forever, <laughs> about why you decided <laughs> to do it this way, which I don't feel is the same for this movie. No. We're done here. All right. Well, the machine has told us that we do need to wrap this up. So I guess the first thing we need to do is answer that question, that age-old question, Dave. Does this film hold up and is it still no. culturally relevant? No, no. Sorry, uh, I should have waited for you to ask the question. No and no. I think people make it culturally relevant because they're trying to worship George Lucas, mm. but this film has no impact on either. It's pretty, but there are prettier movies that have more impact. This could easily just be uh, yeah. tossed out. I, I'm, I'm a no and no as well. Like again... An interesting curiosity if you want to see the first movie that George Lucas sure. made. But, I mean, it's kind of the similar thing to a lot of old uh, movie directors. It's like, yeah, go watch their first film. It's not their best work, but uh, it's interesting if you want to see like their complete like body of work. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, not not to bring it up too much, but I, I watched Wong Kar Wai's first film on a Criterion. I hated it. Which it one was is awful, that? But you, shit, I don't even remember what it's called. Andy Lau's like 18 years old. Yeah. And you're going to say that you don't like thing. In the Mood for Love, Dave. It's pretty. Oh, Let's my not start God. That. Oh Helen my loves God. that movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right. One of the well, best this, movies this of all I, time. It's fine. Whatever. It's fine. Yeah. I, uh, I, well, this is why I watched this movie. I tried to Kyle it and I thought, okay, well, Helen will definitely watch the middle three Wong Kar Wai movies. Mm -hmm. She loves uh, all of them. I don't. But. Uh, I turned on the first one and just like this, you see, sometimes he frames something and you're like, oh, there's Wong Kar Wai before he met the cinematographer. Right. Or, you know, he understands something. The movie's terrible. <laughs> it's unwatchable, right? It's like Andy Lau's this weird, too good looking gangster thug who has to beat everybody to death for his honor of his annoying friend. Like, it's just, he falls in love with his cousin. Like, the whole thing Dave, doesn't Dave, make any sense. Sometimes you just want to look at Tony Lung. Well, it's Andy oh, Lung. Jesus Christ. So, yeah. Dave, sometimes you just want to look at Andy Lung. 
Well, everybody wants to look at Andy Lau. He's the most beautiful Chinese man ever he's lived. In, he still he's, looks he's exactly the same. Shang Chi or whatever the, the new. No, that's Tony Lung. See, this is where I'm getting yeah. confused. I thought it was Tony. Yeah. <laughs> no, those are two different actors. I know, but yeah. I thought that's who I had in my mind, and then you corrected Tony me. Tony Lung is in the mood for love. Is Tony Lung? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. who I want to look at. And well, Andy Lau's prettier. Whoa. Yeah. Okay, these are fighting words going I'll send on you here. Picture. Okay, so we're both no and no. Um, let's go into some. Critics' Choice. Roger Ebert did like this movie in 1971. He wrote, The sound effects add to the illusion of a distant and different society. The dialogue seems half heard, half forgotten. People talk in a bemused way as if the drugs had made them indifferent. Their words are suspended in a muted, echoing atmosphere in which only the computer-programmed recorded announcements seem confident. And the featureless whiteness of this universe stretches away into infinity, especially in the effective scene involving a prison with no walls. How can you escape from a prison that is simply an empty void? THX 1138 suffers somewhat from its simplistic storyline, but as a work of visual imagination, it's special, and as haunting as parts of 2001, Silent Running, and The Andromeda Strain. So that's what he wrote. We actually didn't even touch on the drug aspect of this, which is also, yes, it's a very obvious metaphor for drugging society and like, you know, just taking your Consumerism med. Anti-vaxxers yeah. would love this movie, Dave. Because, <laughs> see, this is what society is trying to do to us. That faceless robot is COVID. <laughs> As you might suspect, Pauline Kale was less enthusiastic. <laughs> I think she wrote this like a couple years after the fact. George Lucas's first feature, a psychedelic view of the horrors of the 25th century, which turns out to be an abstract version of 1984. The compulsory drugged characters are shaven-headed, wear white, and are photographed against white. The effect is both gloomy and blinding. Maggie McComey and anxious-eyed Robert Duvall are the lovers. Donald Pleasant's the nasty, as usual. Some talent, but too much art. Movie lovers may enjoy ticking off the homages or steals, Cocteau's Orpheus, Dreyer's The Passion of the Ark, and so on. I think I side with her more. It's like, yes, this is like, this is too art, art film and forgetting like the narrative needs to be interesting as well. I feel like if I were smart, I could be a Pauline Kale. I think we agree on life on a spiritual maybe, level, maybe. but she's just intelligent and well-read and I am not. Keep reaching for that star. Well, I'm sure there's going to be people that disagree with us here, Dave. So that is what you and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to kyleanddavevsthemachine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle kdvstm. And if you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash kdvstm. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar a month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Dave, we have to do two things here this week because the machine is also making us do a different list now start going forward of director's first films that we have actually talked quite a bit about here. <sighs> so first and foremost, what would you rate this film out of five? I'm making a W sound, so there's going to be a one in it. Oh. I think I'm going to go to a... One and a half. I was thinking leading into this to go with a two, but I just, I just, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't want it. I don't you know? want it. I won't give it a one because, uh, yeah, there are hints and there are some beautifully crafted sort of visuals, but 
just the whole thing is pretentious and I, I, I hated the experience of it. So I'm going to go with the 1.5. I'm going to stick with oh, that oh, too, oh. your impulse that you had there at the very beginning. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like I do enjoy parts of this. I don't like outright think this is one of the worst films I've ever seen. Like it would not even be in the conversation of worst films that I've ever seen. But I also did not really super enjoy watching this movie either. Like I said, I fell asleep completely once and almost dozed off a second time. That is going to average out, of course, to 1.5 eventually when we put it onto our list. Right now, though, Dave, that is tying with three other movies. So from top to bottom, it's tied with Billy Jack, Big Jake, and Plaza Suite. So where would you put oh, that in that list? Probably at the bottom. So you think I mean, Plaza Suite is better than this movie? No, but I'm just, this is fresher. The wound is fresh. So. I don't know. All right. Put it above Plaza Suite. I, I, think, mean, it has I, to, I, like I think it Big has Jake. to go above Plaza Suite personally. Yeah. I didn't like Big Jake, but Big Jake, when it worked, had better moments yeah, than this film. I think there's better moments in Big Jake for sure. And Billy Jack is like, again... Didn't love it, but boy, was I yeah, never bored. Like if you talk about yeah, boredom, exactly. like I was never bored with Billy Jake. <laughs> Billy Jack. I, I mean, God uh, damn it. Billy Jack. I don't know if anybody can still see the text chain Al and I <laughs> were sharing watching that film, but that is the most agitated either of us have ever been this season. <laughs> there wasn't a minute that could pass by that film where we didn't have to if we were on a couch, actually, if yeah. it wasn't COVID, there were we would just been yelling at some point because that that movie is just bonkers. Full of it. Yeah. <laughs> like, bonkers. How is this happening? Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, then entering our main list of movies from 1971 at the number uh, 26 position is THX 1138. However, with our rating uh, for our first time directors list, it looks like it's going to handily go on the very bottom. But I just want to I just want to go through this just in case you yeah, want to pitch. This is all new to me. So right now with THX, we only have eight films. The, I will say that the backstory to this list that the machine has told me is that the filmmaker needed to have made at least four films. Oh my God. So the director so needed to have okay. made at least, directed at least four movies. Um, mm -hmm. And then it'd be like their first full length feature film. So actually there's nine movies on here right now. Okay. We have at the very top being John Malkovich. Number two, The Iron Giant. Number three, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Four is Payback. Five is Titus. Six is Play Misty for Me. Seven is American Beauty. Eight is A New Leaf. And currently number nine is THX 1138. Now, unless you feel that it should go up or down or something like that. No, I mean, you were talking about New Leaf, so mm -hmm. that's interchangeable. But uh, there's something in the middle. I was kind of surprised it was lower, but that's, that's fine. I think it's good. Oh, these are only nine films up. here, Dave. So but Definitely, Being John Malkovich is the best debut film of all time, maybe. Well, maybe not of all time, incredible. but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I guess we should find out what we are watching next week, Dave. I'm just going to push this little button here. <laughs> Slow <laughs> collapse. I'm so excited, Dave. Dave, we get to talk next week, Escape from the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> I get to nerd out so hardcore next week on a movie you're going to fucking hate, but I am going to love it. And I'm going to delve into like the whole mythology of the first three Planet of the Ace movies. So basically, I'll be calling in sick and uh, I'll see you in the next episode. All right. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> what do you think we should do, Dave? Do we continue to run away or do we stay and fight? 
I think the first thing we need to do is shave our heads. Okay. Uh, and then, Next, now what? I don't remember what happened in that last movie because it was so bad. I've, well, luckily I've I have blood. all these Richard Nixon quotes. So let me just go see if that's going to work. Earth is a planet of apes to me.